Welcome back, Play On Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Josh Stavros. Today, we have a special treat for you. Ian Desher is the author of the plays in the Shakespeare's Star Wars trilogy series, Verily, A New Hope, The Empire Striketh Back, and The Jedi Doth Return. He's also written the William Shakespeare's Star Wars prequels, The Phantom of Menace, The Clone Army Attacketh, and The Tragedy of the Sith's Revenge. Ian has a BA in music from Yale University, a Master of Divinity from Yale Divinity School, and a PhD from Union Theological Seminary. He is currently the director of nonprofit marketing at Pivot Group LLC, a full service marketing, research, and web agency in Portland, Oregon. Recently, the festival hosted the annual Wooden O Symposium. The symposium is a cross disciplinary conference exploring medieval through early modern studies through text and performance of Shakespeare's plays. Scholars submit papers that offer insights and new ideas springing from the era of William Shakespeare. Ian was invited as one of this year's keynote addresses, and the audio recording you will hear is selections from his keynote address at the Woodno Symposium in 2015. Good afternoon. My name's Ryan Paul, and I'm part of the Wooden Oak Planning Committee, and I have the distinct pleasure and honor to introduce to you our wonderful speaker. But first, I'd like to welcome you to the 14th Annual Wooden Oak Symposium. And I know that I, I, it's not nice to necessarily begin with what you were going to miss, but we had a few technical issues. And uh, just so you know, without the slides, Michael Barr and I were going to do living tableaus of the Star Wars scenes. Uh, I will be Princess Leia in the Jabba the Hutt bikini, and uh, he gets to be Boba Fett, so I don't know how he gets all the luck and stuff. But uh, we're grateful for the support of Southern Utah University, for the Rocky Mountain Medieval and Renaissance Association, for the College of Performing and Visual Arts here on campus, and for the Gerald R. Sherritt Library. All of those organizations have helped provide this uh, wonderful conference. For those of you who don't know, the Wooden Nose Symposium is in its 14th year. It has been uh, a, scholarship, a scholarly program dedicated to the study of Shakespeare scholarship. Scholars from all over the world come and present papers for three days on the intricacies and ins and outs of the Bard and his works. And so for the next three days, we'll be sharing various aspects of, of his life, his work, and its relevance to, to us today. And those of us who are Shakespeare scholars know that anytime we can communicate the power of the language of the Bard, and not only his language, but the way he wrote it, it's a good thing. And that's why we're very uh, thrilled to have Ian Desher here, who has done that uh, in spades. As you know, the author of the, the Star Wars Shakespeare series, and I come to this, I've spent the last, I don't know, 15 hours or so, with, with, with Ian a little bit, well, not the whole time, but, but uh, you know, a good portion of it, uh, talking about this, and I think that I'm, I come from it more as the Star Wars guy. I was born in 1970 and remember seeing Star Wars live at the, at the Cynodome in Riverdale where I grew up, and we talked a lot about that, and I was very excited to see as my love of Shakespeare came later in life that uh, the two things that I love a lot have, have been mashed together in such a wonderful fashion. A uh, couple little bit of housekeeping before we, we begin with uh, Ian's speech and his presentation. This, there will be a question and answer session after if you're interested and have questions. And also, he has graciously agreed for those of you who couldn't make the book signing or had your books uh, brought them with you, he has a few minutes after this particular presentation to sign those if you would so desire. So, uh, Ian comes to us from Portland. He has a, an MA in music from Yale University. He also has a Master's of Divinity from the Yale Divinity School, and he earned, his P, he earned his PhD in ethics from the Union Theological Seminary. And I'll let you, I'll let him tell you a little more about the process and what happened. And please give a warm welcome to uh, Ian Desher. Thank you so much, everybody, for having me here. It is really a lot of fun to be here uh, and to get to get a tiny glimpse of the Utah Shakespeare Festival. I was hoping that I could stay longer, but tomorrow's my anniversary, so I'm, I'm, I'm going home. Uh, so the first thing that I, I need to get out of the way, since this is a, a conference for Shakespearean scholars, is that I'm not a Shakespeare scholar. Um, I was talking to a couple of friends about coming here 
the other day, and one of them was like, well, you're kind of a Shakespeare scholar, and I was like, no, I'm, I'm really not a Shakespeare scholar. And my other friend said, yeah, you're kind of just a Shakespeare guy. Uh, yeah, I'm a Shakespeare guy. I'm okay with that, with that title. So how did I become a Shakespeare guy? Um, these are the notes that I took my freshman year of high school, learning about the poetic feat uh, that I found this a couple years ago. Um, uh, when we started studying Shakespeare in high school, it was a, uh, just came naturally to me. I had a theater background, so I loved that here we were in English class reading a play. Um, you know, we, we always had to memorize speeches from one of the plays we were reading, and so I uh, was the guy who would always raise his hand to volunteer to go first. That you're building a picture of the sort of nerd that I was. Uh, summer after my sophomore year, uh, Kenneth Branagh came out with his Much Ado About Nothing movie, which I saw in the movie theater with my mom about 10 times. Uh, so hot date with mom uh, at about age 16. Uh, and uh, you would see plays at our local Shakespeare uh, theater in Portland, which was called Tiger's Heart, which has since closed, unfortunately. And I've been, been a Star Wars guy even longer than this. Uh, my parents uh, raised me on Star Wars. I remember seeing Return of the Jedi in the theater when I was six years old. So it's been a part of who I've been forever. So the idea came about, here we go, let's do this. Uh, I, uh, three things happened right around the same time for me. Uh, and this was three years ago, three, a little over three years ago. I got together with some high school friends and we watched the Star Wars trilogy together. I, I knew the movies forward and backward, but hadn't seen them in a while. Uh, and then not too long after that, I read Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, uh, which is one of the first mashup books uh, that was really super popular and everything. And then a week or two after finishing that book, my family and I went to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. This is a picture of uh, the stage in Ashland, uh, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Uh, and so I was actually in uh, Ashland, sort of having Star Wars and mashups and Shakespeare bouncing around in my head uh, when I had the idea for for the, the mashup for William Shakespeare's Star Wars. And so this is where the dumb luck portion of the story comes into play. Uh, I looked up Quirk Books online. They were the ones who had published Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and a few other mashups that had been successful. Looked them up and their editor's email address was there online. And so I sent him an email and said, hey, I have this idea. I'm nobody, by the way. Uh, I have this idea. What would, what would it be like to take Star Wars and rewrite it as though it were a play by Shakespeare? And he wrote back pretty quickly and said, that's an interesting idea. If you actually write something, let me know, and I'll take a look at it. So then I was excited. A real-life editor might take a look at something I would write. I spent the next three weeks putting together the first act, uh, so basically the first fifth of the, of the book, and uh, sent it off to him. And he called me that morning and said, I really want to do this. So again, future writers of America, don't listen to a word I'm saying. Uh, it's not supposed to go like this. Um, and then he said, we need to get approval from Lucasfilm. Uh, so what I had done, um, uh, first of all, just to start talking about some of the decisions I had to start making early on. Um, so one of the big questions as I sat down to write was, how do you deal with all the action sequences in Star Wars? Uh, how do you how do you you know take action that is bigger than a stage you know and and somehow translate it into something that Shakespeare could have actually uh, imagined doing? And then I remembered well of course Shakespeare already did that himself in Henry V when he has the chorus come out uh, at the beginning of the play and apologize uh, that he can't that this small play can't hold the fields of of Agincourt and uh, and Harfleur and things like that so. I decided, okay, chorus is what I'm going to do. So, uh, one of the very first thing I had to sit down and write was the opening crawl of Star Wars, the, the yellow words that go up the screen, right? So for me, that had to be a Shakespearean sonnet, um, because, you know, why not put that extra constraint on myself? So, oh, and you'll hear, I, I, I'm a big one for constraining myself and, and challenging myself. So this is how it goes. It is a period of civil war. The spaceships of the rebels, striking swift from base unseen, have gained a victory o'er the cruel galactic empire, now adrift. Amidst the battle, rebel spies prevailed and stole the plans to a space station vast, whose powerful beams will later be unveiled and crush a planet, tis the Death Star blast. Pursued by agents sinister and cold, now Princess Leia to her home doth flee, delivering plans and a new hope they hold of bringing freedom to the galaxy. In time so long ago begins our play, 
in star-crossed galaxy far, far away. <laughs> so, we sent, Quirk Books took what I had written and sent it off to Lucasfilm. And I had stayed pretty close. I didn't add a lot of my own stuff to the, the script of that, in that first draft because I, like many of you, probably think of Lucasfilm as being very protective of their material. Um, and so they were the ones who wrote back and said, we like where this is going so far, but we want to see if he can do more with it, have more fun with it, you know, make, really make it his own. Uh, and so I went back and, and uh, revised the first couple of scenes. And in those first scenes, we have R2-D2 and C-3PO, uh, you know, on the ship. Uh, and I decided, you know, wouldn't it be fun to have R2-D2 turn to the audience and speak in English? Uh, in his in his asides to the audience. So uh, at one point, after C-3PO has just called him an imp, and he climbs into the uh, escape pod, and R2-D2 turns to the audience and says, "This golden droid has been a friend, tis true, and yet I wish to still his prating tongue. An imp he calleth me. I'll be revenged, and merry pranks of plenty I shall play upon this pompous droid C-3PO. Yet not in language shall my pranks be done." Around both humans and the droids, I must be seen to make such errant beeps and squeaks as they shall think me simple. <laughs> Truly, though, although with sounds oblique I speak to them, I clearly see how I shall play my part, and how a vast rebellion shall succeed by wit and wisdom of a simple droid. <laughs> so, Lucasfilm uh, accepted, you know, uh, this. They said, okay, we're, we're ready to move on. They were actually very unsure about the whole R2-D2 thing for a while, uh, but my editor talked them into it. Um, it was interesting to see as I, you know, then put together the rest of the script and the rest of the book uh, and sent it off to Lucasfilm. It was interesting to see where their lines in the sand were. Uh, so, you know, R2-D2 can speak in English, but other things aren't okay. Uh, so here's an example. Uh, this is a speech that I wrote for Darth Vader uh, as, as Darth Vader, as they're preparing to go and uh, destroy Alderaan uh, with the Death Star. Darth Vader says, the death of innocence brings me no joy. Although the dark side is my chosen path, I cannot see the goal in senseless death. Yet even as I have this very thought, I do mark well my own hypocrisy. For I have played the part of Judge Severe and then have been the executioner. So why care I for those on Alderaan if I would murder innocence as they? But soft, it is not mine to try and tell the motives whereby one doth any good or any evil. And then he goes on, you know, basically saying, like, okay, you know, he ends by saying, to Alderaan we go on course direct, and though I like it not, I'll not object. Lucasfilm read the first draft, they picked out that monologue, that soliloquy, and they said, no. As of this moment in episode four, Darth Vader is totally evil. He wouldn't show any remorse about killing innocent people. So here they are, knowing their characters so well, uh, you know, that they wouldn't allow something like that. So I took the speech and I turned it around 180, deg 180 degrees. So it became, the death of innocence doth bring me joy. Because the dark side is my chosen path, the senseless end of others pains me not. For I have played the part of Judge Severe and then have been the executioner. Why would I care for those on Alderaan when I have murdered innocence as they? Tis my dark calling which I do embrace. To Alderaan we fly on course direct, and to this feast of death I'll not object. <laughs> Now, uh, oh, that was Darth Vader, by the way. Uh, <laughs> visually, when we think of Shakespeare, you know, there's one pose that is going to make us think of Shakespeare automatically, which is this, right? Which is this. <laughs> okay? So, I didn't plan, I've, I've sprinkled allusions to Shakespeare's work throughout these books, uh, some that are more painfully obvious than others. Uh, this was the only one that I really planned out in advance. Um, so here we have Luke, after he and Han have snuck their way into the Death Star and put on Stormtrooper outfits, gone through the trash compactor scene, and then they're changing out of their Stormtrooper outfits, and Luke says, Alas, poor Stormtrooper, I knew ye not. Yet have I tamed both uniform and life from thee. What manner of a man wert thou, a man of infinite jest or cruelty, a man with helpmate and with children too, a man who hath his empire served with pride, a man, perhaps, who wished for perfect peace. Whate'er thou wert, good man, thy pardon grant unto the one who took thy place, e'en me. <laughs> There's Luke. So, uh, thanks, thank you. So this, of course, was, was uh, you know, it was, this was great fun to sit down and, and work on. Uh, every time I sat down to do it, it did not feel like a chore. 
Uh, and it let me, you know, do things like, uh, at book events, uh, pull out some things that I never really thought I would, uh, as a kid, when you're, when you're practicing voices and things like that, you really have no idea what it's, what, what that's for, why you're doing that, except that it's just fun. So now I think I finally know. So this is Obi-Wan in the final, uh, scene where he and Darth Vader are, uh, fighting and he's just decided that he's going to let himself be killed. A Jedi is not made of fear or hate, but must a nobler countenance display. It is a lesson learned in times gone by that still I teach myself unto this day. Full many years I have spent with thoughts of this, this instant when Darth Vader I'd confront. But now my thirst for retribution's cold, while sweet forgiveness doth my spirit taste. I know I cannot win this battle here, nor would I wish to slay the kindly man who surely still within this black shell lives. And so unto this death I'll go, this sleep that promises the dream of peace, this undiscovered galaxy wherein I'll know at last tranquility of heart. But ere I die, I'll one last lesson teach. I shall in this, my final moment, set a keen example for the universe, that future generations may yet know the valor and the strength of Jedi Knight. Put up thy lightsaber now, Obi-Wan, and show thyself a Jedi to this son. And then he dies. So the first book came out, and uh, and it was embraced very warmly. I'm I'm very happy to say. Uh, you know, there were the critics on on all sides. There were the Shakespearean people who were saying, "Well, this is clearly not Shakespeare." <laughs> and to which my response is, "You bought a book called William Shakespeare's Star Wars. Um, it's not Shakespeare. That's right. It's it's a Shakespeare guy." Who's trying his hardest? Um, uh, one of the criticisms that I did hear and take to heart was that I had used the chorus too much, uh, you know, to, to explain the action sequences. So Quirk Books asked me if I would uh, write the sequels, and I'm no dummy, so I said yes. Uh, and so uh, I went on to write Empire and Return of the Jedi, uh, and, and did, in fact, reduce the, the role of the chorus a bit. Um, but when you get into Empire Strikes Back, you have to deal with Yoda. Um, and so, already after the first book came out, there were people saying, oh, now everybody sounds like Yoda, right? Because the nature of uh, putting things into iambic pentameter and Elizabethan uh, vocabulary usage is that word order starts to become fluid, and, uh, and so everybody is mixing up their words a little bit. Uh, so I had to do something really special with Yoda. I sent a proposal to Lucasfilm with three different ideas, any of which I could have done, and none of which I was crazy about. Um, so one of the ideas was, well, okay, if everybody else is speaking in, you know, Elizabethan English or something like it, uh, maybe Yoda needs to go back even farther and speak in something like Chaucer. Uh, and so I tried my hand at writing some Chaucer-like dialogue and realized that I'm definitely not a Chaucer guy. Um, then I thought, well, okay, maybe if, if they're all speaking in an older form of language, maybe he will speak in something much more modern. Right? So instead of saying, do or do not, there is no try, he would say, oh, come on, just do it. You're being ridiculous. <laughs> you know? And another thought I had was, maybe you just leave his lines alone. Maybe you just recognize the fact that, that his speech is so purely awesome in the movies, you just don't touch it. Well, I was, I was running one day, and I think I was running when I had the original idea for the book. So all good things happen when you run. Um, and so I was running one day and had the idea for what I was actually going to do and ended up doing, which was to put all of Yoda's uh, lines into haiku. Um, now, of course, from a Shakespearean point of view, this doesn't make any sense at all, right? Shakespeare, as far as we know, probably didn't have any knowledge of the haiku form of, of poetry, right? Um, and yet, it, as soon as I had the idea, I was like, of course, that it just makes perfect sense. Um, so here's Yoda uh, talking to Luke, uh, speaking in uh, a group of haiku. Nay, size matters not. Look thou at me, I prithee. Judge me by my size, and where you should not. For my ally, tis the force, a powerful ally. Life doth create it, its energy surrounds us, binds us together. Luminous beings we are, not this crude matter. You must feel the force. All around thee, here, between thou and me, tree, rock, everywhere it is. In between the land and your ever-sinking ship, the force is there, too. So, that's how you're there. 
So in the first book, I hadn't used any uh, prose at all. Basically, I didn't want to be accused of being lazy with my iambic pentameter, so I think just about every single line of that first book is in iambic pentameter. Um, now, the Shakespeare guy's understanding of uh, how Shakespeare used prose uh, is, you know, to separate the upper-class characters from the lower-class characters, which is certainly true in some of his works. Now, of course, the Shakespearean scholar would say Shakespeare used prose for many other uh, reasons. You know, Much Ado About Nothing is something like 80% prose, uh, and so that, that rule doesn't always fit. But I did decide that, um, you know, to have... Uh, in, once Empire came around, to have a character who was, in fact, speaking in prose. And who better to do that than the lowest of the low bounty hunters, Boba Fett? Uh, and so this is a speech that Boba Fett gives. And of course, you have to, I mean, if you're dealing with Boba Fett, you have to make him a, more, a bigger character than he is in the movie because he's become so popular over time. So this is what, uh, this is Boba Fett talking about uh, sort of his mission to go and find Han Solo that he's been put on by Darth Vader. The darkest Sith that e'er did live, and I am his choice to find those he cannot. Yet who am I? A mere bounty hunter like the others here? Nay, far more. I am Boba Fett, the vilest, fiercest, most deadly hunter in the galaxy. More than that, Darth Vader knows that I shall serve him well and faithfully in the pursuit of Solo. He knoweth well that Boba Fett doth worship at sweet compensation's throne, and would happily betray my own kin to earn the great reward that hath been promised. I would kill Solo without a thought, for what is he to me? Disintegrations, indeed. I would disintegrate, disembowel, dismember, destroy utterly Han Solo. For I know him not, nor care what he hath done, to earn Darth Vader's ire and the scorn of Jabba of the Hutt. I shall play my bounty hunter's part, obey the Dark Lord, take my prize from the Empire, and receive a second prize on the dunes of Tatooine. That's Boba Fett. And one of the other... Thank you. Uh, one of the other changes uh, here was to take some of the characters, some of the creatures, and give them lines. Uh, because, you know, if you're going to have these big space creatures, you might as well let them have some lines. So this guy you learn when you do a Star Wars book is called an Exogorth. I'm sure you all knew that. Uh, you, either, you may have known him as a space slug or just that weird thing that comes out of the asteroid and tries to eat the Millennium Falcon. Uh, so this is what the Exogorth says, the little speech that it gives after the Millennium Falcon has flown away out of, its, out of its grasp. Alas, another meal hath fled and gone, and in the process I am sorely hurt. These travelers who have escaped my reach use me past the endurance of a block. My stomach they did injure mightily with jabs and pricks, as though a needle were a-bouncing in my belly. Oh, cruel fate. To be a space slug is a lonely lot, with no one on this rock to share my life, no true companion here to mark my days. And now my meals do from my body fly. Was there a beast by supper so abused? Was there a creature's case so pitiful? Was there an exogorth as sad as I? Was there a tragedy as deep as mine? I shall with weeping crawl back to my cave, which shall son's food be like become my grave. <laughs> so uh, then we move on to Jedi. Then we move on to Jedi. Uh, now Shakespeare's songs, right, are are such a wonderful part of of, uh, of Shakespeare's works, and I I'd included a song uh, in the first book and a handful of songs in the. Uh, in the second book, the uh, the Ugnots were the little characters on in Cloud City who steal all C-3PO's parts. They're actually like a roving band of singing dwarves in, uh, <laughs> in my book. Um, and of course, we have to have uh, Jabba's band do play a song. Now, I decided that uh, since Jabba is referred to as a a gangster throughout uh, throughout the Star Wars trilogy. Uh, that their song would have to be some sort of Elizabethan gangster rap. Uh, so I originally wrote a, a version of uh, the 1990s song, Damn It Feels Good to Be a Gangsta. Uh, but Lucasfilm was a little bit concerned about copyright issues, so I ended up uh, you know, writing my own, uh, my own thing. Now, this is where I get to, get to name drop just a little bit, because it's fun. Uh, I went to college with a man named Bobby Lopez, who is, uh, he and his wife together wrote all the songs for Frozen. Um, and so Bobby and I were in the same singing group together in college, and uh, he knew about these Star Wars books when they were, started coming out, and 
you know, we started talking about possible ways to collaborate. So he ended up writing, uh, for the audiobook version of Return of the Jedi, writing the Jabba's Band song. So I'm going to give you the Bobby Lopez version of the Elizabethan gangster rap from Jabba's Band. <laughs> A gangster I, a gangster oh, tis well to be a gangster, tis well to be a gangster. A blaster rever by thy side, a stately barge in which to ride, a fair young damsel to thee tied, tis well to be a gangster. A gangster I, a gangster oh, tis well to be a gangster. Tis well to be a gangster. Full many servants lend thee aid, more guards than a Naboo brigade, and bounty hunters on parade. Tis well to be a gangster. So, anyway, that's. that's it. And then we talk about other. I, I mentioned putting restrictions on myself, right? As these books went along, I put all kinds of this. This image is worth the price of the book itself, right? <laughs> when I saw this, I, you know, I just absolutely fell in love. This is Admiral Akbar, of yes. course. Um, so restrictions that I put on myself, I, I started doing all sorts of different things. And, and, you know, so you have to start keeping track. When Han Solo and Princess Leia uh, start getting amorous with each other, basically from the moment that he sort of takes her hands into his, they start speaking in rhyming quatrains to each other, uh, as <laughs> Romeo and Juliet do. Um, uh, uh, other examples, for instance, all of Admiral Akbar's lines uh, end in a word that rhymes with app. Um, <laughs> so here is his, his most famous line in my telling of it. Oh, knavery most vile, oh, trick of empire's basest wit, a snare, a ruse, a ploy, and we the fools, what great deception hath been plied today. Oh, rebels, do you hear? Fie, tis a trap! <laughs> uh, and then also just the fun of getting into a real Shakespearean villain, uh, Emperor Palpatine, uh, who is in, he's in Empire Strikes Back a little bit, but once you get around to Return of the Jedi, you really get to explore his, his character more. Uh, so this is, uh, you know, the Emperor just walking around on the Death Star, sort of thinking evil thoughts. <laughs> and I'm not going to try to do Ian McDiarmid, uh, or, or we, we would all be ashamed. <laughs> Our age is but a constant grasp for power, a time when trust and honor are no more, and all is but a furious race till death. How doth a person make a life that's worth the living? Is it by love or ventures? Nay. The one who hath the greatest power prevails. The politicians grumble, scrape, and grab, a fighting over their spheres of influence. The people cringe and whimper neath the loads placed on them by those in authority, and all in bleak timidity do cower when in the presence of their emperor. Oh, what a piece of work we are! I should find joy in our humanity, and yet to me what is this quintessence of dust? A galaxy of vermin searching for a crumb of what the best do eat, all ruled by those who have the appetite for power. For in a world of darkness, only those who serve the dark deserve to live and thrive. Let those naive and wayward souls who seek for justice, wisdom, honesty, and right endure such suffering as fits their weak and simple souls. Let those who love be made to witness how their loved ones scream and shriek, and that the last forsake in those they love when tortured by the mighty hand of power. Let those who lurch and stumble toward the light discover in the moments ere they die the light they sought is but a blaster shot, lightsaber beam, or lightning of the Sith that shall their wretched life put to an end. And let the vow rebellion choke upon its own absurd and innocent ideals until each sickening, cursed, backward soul who e'er hath spoken in rebellion's name lies broken in the streets beneath my steps. Aye, let's kill all the rebels. It shall be, for power is my slave, and I its God. So those books came out, and I never was going to do the prequels. Um, I really wasn't. Uh, the prequel trilogy, that for those of you who don't know Star Wars well, the movies that were released after the original trilogy, the ones that came out in 1999, 2002, and 2005, uh, were far less popular among people my age. Um, which is 26. Uh, and, uh, and so, so, but what happened is that not only were adults coming up to me and asking me about doing the prequels, but so many kids at book events were coming up, kids, you know, around the age of 11, 12, 13, 
begging me to do the prequels. Um, because for them, that is Star Wars. That's the Star Wars they know and love most. So, uh, so I've done those, and the third one comes out in September. The other two came out earlier this year. <laughs> in dealing with the, the prequels, you have to deal with Jar Jar Binks, um, because he is the most hated character, uh, maybe in movie history. Um, and uh, so what I did with him was take him, make him into a character, sort of like R2-D2, in that uh, he speaks one way to, some, to the characters, but in his asides to the audience, he's speaking a totally different way. The difference being that R2-D2, when he turns to, to the audience and talks, you get basically what you expect from R2-D2. He's snarky, he's noble, he's all of those things. Jar Jar Binks, it turns out, is uh, brilliant. Uh, it turns out that he is uh, actually directing events to the course that he wants them to go. And his main goal is to get the people of Naboo and the people and the Gungans uh, to be reunited. He realizes that they've been separated by prejudice and things like that, and he wants to reunite them. And he sees the Jedi coming to Naboo as his chance to do that. And so he will play dumb, uh, but in fact he is, uh, he's actually going to be the one sort of directing events. So this is what Jar Jar Binks says uh, as he sees Qui-Gon uh, approaching, being chased by battle droids. A man approacheth, clothed in Jedi garb, but like this man brings aid unto Naboo, such as will help my people and my land. Mayhap this is the chance I have desired, for I have wandered low these many months, a-thinking o'er this planet's dreary fate, two people separated by their fear and prejudice, which e'er doth make us shirk from giving help unto each other. Aye, it may be that the only hope for us to be united is to realize that our two fates are tightly knit as one. Perchance this Jedi, followed by these droids, doth bring the words to break our deep mistrust. I shall make introduction in my way. Portray the part that I have learned so well. It doth befit the human prejudice to think we Gungan simple, low, and rude. I shall approach him thus, yet shall bend him to the path that shall assist us all. Put on thy simple wits now, Jar Jar Binks. Thus play the role of clown to stoke his pride. That's very good. And so other things in terms of constraints, uh, Watto became my dogberry. Uh, he uh, is misusing words left and right. Um, every single uh, line of Mace Windu's includes the title of a Samuel L. Jackson movie. Um, so that's the books. Uh, I wrote these books primarily um, to be enjoyed, just to, you know, for them to be something that people would like. Uh, most of all, my two most important Star Wars fans, my sons, Graham and Liam, um, who, who actually didn't get to watch the Star Wars movies until their dad became a Star Wars author. Uh, so, they're, so they're excited, if only for that reason. Um, it's, been, it's been fun, uh, just the, the way that this has all unfolded has been really fun. So getting to meet other Star Wars authors and members of the 501st Legion, when I had my first uh, book event, my publisher told me, oh, we think the 501st Legion is going to be able to come out. And I said, oh, great. And then I went and Googled the 501st Legion. Because <laughs> I was picturing, you know, like senior citizen military guys who get dressed up and come out to events, which was great. And it turns out the 501st Legion is a worldwide fan club of Star Wars that have movie-style costume, movie-quality costumes, and dress up and, you know, and go to book events, they go to children's hospitals. They do all sorts of actually amazing work. Um, so I've gotten to, to know them. In fact, I'm an honorary member of the 501st Legion. So how's that for geek credentials? Um, it was fun to see how the book inspired uh, other fan arts, right? This is Darth Shakespeare. Um, you can't see it very well in this. That is an iron-forged helmet uh, that, that you know a, a guy made um, after he was commissioned to do it. Uh, after somebody had read my book and, and asked him to make this thing, I saw it online. He had, the, the guy who made it, you know, tagged me in the video of him making it. I saw it online, and I am not the sort of person who buys paraphernalia, but I now own a Darth Shakespeare helmet. Because, uh, I mean, if there's going to be any sort of memorabilia of this uh, whole thing that I did, it's got to be that. Um, Lego Shakespeare Star Wars, right? Uh, these are not the droids for which thou searched. Uh, that sort of thing. Um, going, you know, 
and realizing the breadth of, of uh, Star Wars around the world. So I was invited by my high school uh, theater teacher to go to Serbia, where he was serving in an international school. This is a teacher in Serbia who happened to have a full stormtrooper costume. Right? <laughs> um, members of the oh, there. Oh, remember, thank you. Members of the Star Wars fan club in Malaysia. Uh, where I went to a, a conference ca called Dangerous Ideas, which was a, a cultural festival. Um, and uh, doing a book event at the uh, Shakespeare's Birthplace gift shop in Stratford-upon-Avon. Star Wars and Shakespeare all over the world. People who love both of these things so much uh, and, and are so passionate about, about both. Um, and so all of this is great, uh, but but there was another you know sneakier reason that I wanted to write these books. Um, I think there's there is a fear of Shakespeare that a lot of kids have when they first come to approach Shakespeare. Right? There, we have sort of built up Shakespeare in our culture to be this uh, this thing that is only for the elite. Uh, only people with advanced educations can understand Shakespeare. Uh, that sort of thing, uh, which which Certainly may be true for, for in terms of Shakespeare's scholarship and the issues that that gets into. But in terms of enjoying Shakespeare, truly anybody can. Um, but I think there's a fear when kids hear, oh, we're starting the Shakespeare unit in English class next week. There's no way. I'm not even going to be able to get it. I just know I'm not. Right? Um, I was one of the lucky ones in that regard. Right? I took to Shakespeare, and, and it made sense for me. Many of us in this room were the lucky ones. Uh, right, for whom Shakespeare came easily, or at least we developed a passion for Shakespeare. But that's truly not, not all of us. So I do hope that these books can be a bridge into Shakespeare for, uh, for kids. So with the first book and with every subsequent book, I've put together these educators' guides. Um, uh, that basically they're, they're guides to just the basics of Shakespeare and how you might use William Shakespeare's Star Wars to introduce Shakespeare to students, right? So, um, it gets into sort of the rules of iambic pentameter, what that is, you know, how it's used, uh, things like, little things that Shakespeare are, you know, are common throughout Shakespeare's work, like uh, rhyming couplets at the end of scenes and, and um, things like that. Uh, it talks about the literary devices that I use. It goes through all of the direct references that I use to Shakespeare's works and where those come from in Shakespeare's work. Um, and so, if nothing else, you know, kids can be exposed to Shakespeare in a, in a safe environment, right? If, it's, if they don't already know Star Wars, and 80% of them do, right, then you could, they can easily learn Star Wars. And if nothing else, they know the references. They've heard of the Force. You know, they've heard of Darth Vader and that sort of thing. Um, so, so reading, you know, at least a, a bit of my book gets them used to the feel of the language. So that hopefully then when they open up real Shakespeare, uh, it's not as big of a leap. Um, and so this has been, it's been great fun to reach out in this way to you. So, so this was a library event in Washington State that I was able to go to where they had kids who had memorized and, and were acting out some of the scenes. Um, this is a, a class, a high school class in Illinois, an English class that I Skyped with, uh, you know, to, uh, uh, you know, talk with them. They, they had been working with, with the book, uh, to get to know it and, and that sort of thing. Um, I mentioned going to Serbia. Um, students in Serbia performed. My high, again, my high school theater teacher had brought me out. He said, "We'll do some scenes uh, from your books as part of a, a theater review we're doing." Uh, and so they did this with a gigantic R2D2 uh, <laughs> on the left hand side, uh, and uh, we just didn't tell Lucasfilm that we were doing this. Uh, Lucasfilm has has is not allowing public performances um, of, of the books. So, um, but. But I would say that, you know, I still say that primarily, you know, first and foremost, the, the overall goal with these books is to make people laugh, it's to make people have a good time and enjoy it. Uh, but second and right after that is hopefully this becomes something that, that can help kids or students, young people get into Shakespeare a little bit more for people who, uh, who it's not, you know, uh, for whom it doesn't come easy. Um, so, uh, just this, this, this was the this was I you know this is the post on Facebook after I finished the last of the prequel books you know uh, posting this picture, um, you know it's the the way these books have been embraced has been so just wonderful for me and I feel so honored and privileged about it. But the biggest gift is when a parent 
you know, emails me and says that their kid read one of my books and then said, now I want to try Shakespeare, right? Or, uh, or was having a hard time getting Shakespeare and read one of my books and then, and then had an easier time, whatever it is. So I hope that for those of you who are Shakespeare scholars and teachers of uh, Shakespeare here in the room, I hope that I'm sending some well-watered students your way. <laughs> Uh, if you know that would be um, that would be the greatest gift that I think I would have with these books. Um, so that's that's really it for me. Uh, I'm happy to take whatever questions uh, you have. Here we have them. Yeah. We have them. We have a microphone here. So if anyone likes a, a question, please let's fire it up. What's been George Lucas's response? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, Lucasfilm has a whole publications department, right? They are they are used to getting requests from people to use their property, and so they have developed systems and departments to deal with that sort of thing. So, uh, and Lucasfilm was bought by Disney, and George Lucas stepped down about two or three months after we started talking with Lucasfilm about the very first book, and so there was actually some nervousness there of. Oh, are they going to shut this down? Or you know, uh, and they didn't happily. Uh, but I don't know. I I haven't gotten the Christmas card from George Lucas, uh, you know, <laughs> telling me how he was sitting on a beach with Steven Spielberg reading through my book. You know, <laughs> still waiting for that. Yeah. You know. um, I'm a theater teacher. These are my students. Hi, students. We are here because we love you. My son gave me the book for Christmas last year. And he said, Mom, this is just geeky enough. I know you're going to love it. And I do. <laughs> um, where, where can we find your educator's guide? Uh, on the Quirk Books website. Um, Quirk Books, okay. Yes. So um, uh, you go to the website there and find the books, and there, there are links to the educator's guides there. Excellent. Thank you so much. Yeah. All right. So she has the book. And I'm not allowed to touch it, so I didn't actually read it, which I'm really sorry for, because I really want to. Um, Your lack of faith disturbed me. <laughs> Go ahead. So my question is, how do you say, that's no moon in a Shakespearean? I don't remember. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. Something like, that's no moon. <laughs> but more Elizabethan than that. Uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. You'll have to, you'll have to look. You'll have to ask her very nicely if you can borrow her. Um, can, are you selling books after this? Because I'm from Washington and I've never seen one. So I, I've never heard of it. And I really want to read it. Well, thank you. First of all, uh, I don't. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if there are books here for sale. Uh, there are books uh, at any. Bookshops. Both bookshops on both sides of the street have copies of this book. You can get them at both both bookshops, but you could also get them at just about any. It's very very popular. Barnes and Noble, anywhere else, and you can find them online. Other than that, too. But yes, they're for sale over across the street. But he will be signing a few, so if you boogie over there when this is done and get back in a few minutes, you can have him sign. Or you're from Washington, just come find me in Oregon. <laughs> His phone number is 742. <laughs> um, when you started to do the first book, um, obviously you, you uh, gave us a bit of an example where you had the Hamlet reference, and also in that same um, soliloquy there was a reference to the Tempest as well. Um, did you find yourself Kind of giving away a lot of the the the, the prime, the plum Shakespearean references that you wanted to do in the first one, and then you were worried when you had the other, when you actually had to write the other five, that you were like kind of um, what you were going to put in there as well to make those jokes work. Yeah, I definitely have to dig deeper into my into my brain to come up with Shakespearean references uh, as time goes on. I haven't, you know, all the references that I throw in are just from my my own knowledge and memory of Shakespeare, right? So it's. So that means they are heavily weighted on Hamlet and Much Ado About Nothing, uh, which are the two. Much Ado because I, again, I've seen the Kenneth Branagh movie so many times. Hamlet because it's the one I, I know best. Uh, and so, yeah, so there was definitely, and there were times when a reference would come up in my mind and I would say, 
no, I can't do that. So when, when Luke Skywalker is uh, staring off into the two sons of Tatooine, which Shakespeare would never have him do. You never, you never stay in silently and stare meaningfully at something. You always have a soliloquy. So he has a soliloquy there. And at one point I had written, to go or not to go, that is the question. <laughs> I, was like, no, I, I can't do that. That's too much. So you did find yourself wanting to kind of um, research Pericles in order to please, please some of the Shakespeare on I didn't, although I will say that, uh, that in... In the middle book of the prequels, the, again, talking about constraints I put on myself, uh, in the clone army attacketh, just like Han and Leia did, Padme and Anakin start speaking in rhyming quatrains to each other. Um, and in the big sort of love scene, which, which actually I took two or three scenes from the movie and put them together into one, hopefully more believable scene than what's in the movie. Uh, and, uh, and in that, I, I, uh, I have a reference to every single one of Shakespeare's comedies. Uh, so I did have to do some digging there uh, to refresh my memory, right? But, but the idea being like, they need some help. Uh, they need help a lot. In the same way that with Revenge of the Sith, uh, uh, I have, well, maybe I shouldn't be saying this, it's not out yet. But I have, uh, I have Anakin uh, use a line from every single one of Shakespeare's tragic heroes uh, throughout, the, throughout the play. Um, just, because, just because, you know, Again, adding that the Revenge of the Sith is such a wonderful classic Shakespearean tragedy. Uh, it was so fun to, to get into for that reason. It may be too soon to ask, but with the Star Wars trilogy continuing on in Episode Seven, are you or do you want to be involved adapting those into Shakespeare plays as well when they start coming out? Or I think the possibility is there. Uh, we my, Quirk Books and and I sort of approached Lucasfilm about the idea of you know maybe. Since they're going to be putting out some books when the movie comes out, maybe one, you know, we could do a Shakespearean version, you know, that comes out at the same time as the movie. Really, I just wanted the script early, right? <laughs> well, who am I kidding? Uh, but and they said they said no to that. They said, you know, if we do it, we'll do it months later. Uh, so that's being talked about. I would say, at this point, I would say there's probably an eighty percent chance that I end up uh, doing that, doing episode seven. And there's probably about an 80% chance that that's the last one of these that I do. Just as a guess. Uh, so this is maybe a two-part question. Uh, the first being, did you do any of the drawing yourself, or were you involved in the ideas for the drawings? I wish I had done the drawings myself. Uh, no. Uh, the illustrator is a man named Nicolas Delort, who, uh, he's Canadian, he lives in Paris, uh, and he, uh, the, the Publisher found him because he obviously does these wonderful woodcut style illustrations. Uh, and the way the process for those worked was, you know, uh, Quirk would sort of send me the list of proposed illustrations that they, you know, that they were thinking of doing uh, and see if I had any input on those and, and that sort of thing. And uh, then they would have him go off and do them. And they have to be approved by Lucasfilm, you know, as, as everything does. So, uh, yeah, so that was the process for those. Great. Uh, the second question then is in the uh, Alas Poor Stormtrooper uh, drawing that you showed. Now I know that Star Wars people and Star Trek people, it's not a mutually exclusive, you know, sometimes antagonistic, but it did look like Luke had a live long and prosper. <laughs> uh, that's how he was holding his hand. Yeah. The, um, the, not that the. Uh, yeah, this thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was unintentional. Uh, I will say I am a Star Trek fan, uh, so I don't believe that you know you have to be either or. Uh, and there are uh, a handful of Star Trek references plopped into. I mean, this is another just super fun thing for me. I hid little things all throughout the text. Uh, references to, um, I, I mean, with all the books, references to uh, to Star Trek, uh, to Nietzsche. Uh, to um, the rhyme of the ancient mariner, uh, to just uh, uh, there's a there's a Rick roll in Clone Army Attacketh um, that I'm pretty proud of. Uh, there are a handful of anagrams. Uh, there are uh, no no yes anagrams. I don't mean anagrams. I'm sorry. I mean acrostics. Thank you. I mean acrostics, not anagrams. Um, my A words, you know. Uh, a handful of acrostics throughout um, throughout the the plays. 
Um, so I, yeah, I just hit in all, all kinds of silly things, uh, references to my college scene groups. So some of them that only I would get, and so, or a very small handful of people would get, and some that, you know, anybody could catch. So the Star Trek references are, are among those, you know. Uh, Han, at one point, when he's talking about going to save Leia out of her cell in the Death Star, says, uh, to boldly go where none have, where none have gone is mad, or something like that. <laughs> Yeah, over here. I'll, I'll speak with that one. Did you have a... Here you go. As you were writing, did you have a favorite character that you discovered? And the second part of this question is, did, did any of your characters surprise you, except maybe for Jar Jar Binks and R2-D2? <laughs> uh, in terms of surprising, as an adult, I sort of feel like Luke Skywalker in the first movie is just sort of a whiny kid, right? I was going to go to the Tashi Station and get some power converters, you know? And so, but you realize as you, I mean, when you rewrite that whole movie, right, and spend that much time with it, he truly is the hero of that, of that book. And so he ended up really, I mean, he was sort of my Henry V, you know, uh, coming across as sort of that level of, of, leader and that sort of thing. Um, this, he gives a speech before the Death Star battle when everybody's starting to get worried about this very small hole that they have to hit. He gives the St. Christmas Day speech, <laughs> essentially, right? Uh, except that it's, that it's, you know, Star Wars. Uh, and so that was one who surprised me. Jar Jar Binks really did become a favorite uh, as I wrote his character, um, which is funny because I felt, you know, I didn't like desperately hate him, uh, you know, when I saw the movies. And yet, when I showed them to my kids and they were, you know, laughing at him and enjoying him, I was saying, hey, stop it, you know? <laughs> so, so I actually really did end up liking the way that, that, you know, liking him after sort of imagining him in this, in this different way. Yeah. It's always fun to write Han Solo. Han Solo was the, you know, the character I always wanted to be when I was a kid, even though I'm much more C3PO. <laughs> Why don't you share that, the story you told me about the, Racial justice thing in the Jar Jar speech? Sure. Um, so uh, he's bringing up stuff that came up on the car ride from Las Vegas last night. So this is privileged communication that you're getting. At. Uh, so so I wrote The Phantom of Menace uh, sort of as everything was blowing up in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, and I have, I did my PhD dissertation on racial justice issues. Uh, and Jar Jar, because he is you know, this person who wants to bring these two divided people together, you know, sort of became my race man. Um, and so uh, he has a speech uh, at one point, and I wish I, uh, I wish I had it. Anybody have a copy of The Phantom of Menace with you? No? Anybody? No? Okay. Well, thought I'd, thought I'd try. Uh, so, uh, you know, he has a speech at one point, and the first 14 lines of the speech uh, are really like my feelings about... Uh, the privilege of those in power. And it you can read those 14 lines and pull them out and not even know for a second that they're in a book about Star Wars. Um, it makes sense within the context of what he's saying, and then he goes on in the speech to talk about the Senate and, and that sort of thing. Uh, but it was just a chance for me, you know, to sort of uh, say something within a safer context, uh, you know, that, that maybe I wouldn't have said uh, in other places. Hi, this is kind of off the topic of Star Wars, but I'm also, I'm a Shakespeare lover with a degree in theology. So for you, as someone with an MDiv who got a PhD at a seminary, how has your love of theology and what you learned about that informed your love of Shakespeare? How has it informed my love of Shakespeare? Um, that's, a great, that's a great question. I don't know that I have a, a good answer for, for that. I would say that that you know, it's come to bear at least a little bit. I mean, certainly in Jar Jar Binks and how I handled all that. Uh, there's a in in the original Star Wars movie. There's a dialogue between Obi Wan and Han and Luke, uh, where Luke says, "You you don't believe in the Force, do you?" And Han says something like, "Did I've seen a lot of you know, I don't remember exactly what the line is, but there's nothing leading me to believe there's one all powerful Force controlling everything." In the, in my book, that becomes more of a sort of religious dialogue, uh, I would say, uh, than you know, than, than it is in the movie. Um, I mean, I guess circling back to your, to your original question as I'm thinking about it, I think if nothing else, 
I appreciate the beauty of Shakespeare for the way I see the divine expressed in it, um, if I can put it that way. Um, I mean, anytime, uh, for the same reason that I love the works of Johann Sebastian Bach, right? Um, anytime you see humans uh, creating art in such a, an amazingly beautiful way, for me, as a you know, religious person, that, that speaks to, to the divine in all of us. Um, I listened to the Audible version of A New Hope, your version of A New Hope, a couple weeks ago and really enjoyed it. Um, one thing that I noticed that you that you tackled was some of the fan quibbles with George Lucas's changes to the stories. And the one in particular that I noticed was when uh, Han, in the original version, he shoots Greedo first and Greedo dies. George Lucas went back and changed it and had Greedo shoot first and then Han shot. And you resolved that dilemma that has concerned fans for a long time by saying something to the effect of and whether I shot first or not, I shall not tell. Pray, <laughs> pray goodly, sir, forgive me for the mess, and whether I shot first, I'll ne'er confess. Yes. <laughs> That's me walking that fine line between Lucasfilm on one side, who's going to be approving the manuscripts, uh, and the fans on the other, who are going to be reading it and making judgments about it, right? So, same thing with... Uh, you know, there's the scenes that were added back into Star Wars. So there's a scene with Han Solo and Jabba the Hutt uh, added back into the original movie. Uh, and I have Han, basically the first line that he says in that scene is, Mary, tis an unexpected scene, right? <laughs> As a little, little nod to the, to the readers, like, okay, I know, but I have to put this in, so. <laughs> and it was also, I mean, in, speaking of, sorry, you probably have a question that's coming No, you answered it yeah. without me asking that, so that's perfect. So, so related to that, you know, Lucasfilm, um, in The Empire Striketh Back, I wrote out the scene where, uh, the, sort of the scene that's missing in, uh, uh, in the movie, it's not missing, but I mean, it could be there, we, we all sort of know that it happened, right? Of Boba Fett coming to Cloud City and convincing Lando that he has to betray Han Solo. I wrote out that whole scene, uh, and Lucasfilm cut the whole thing. Uh, they said it's, they, their words were, it's too close to canon. Um, so, like, this is too close to how it might have actually gone, or whatever, you know, and so, therefore, I did it because, in general, Shakespeare doesn't often surprise his audience, uh, at least not that much, right? So, normally, he lets, uh, he, other characters can be surprised, right, but he lets the, you know, that's the reason that villains tell you, you know, you're not, you, don't, you don't find out at the end of Othello, oh my goodness, it was Iago all along, right? Uh, you know the whole time that he's scheming and, and everything. Um, Another, another fun thing that got cut, even but this was, the, I think, the only thing that, that Lucasfilm, I'm sorry, that Quirk Books cut before Lucasfilm ever even laid eyes on it. Uh, and I'm really sad about it, so I, so I have to tell you all that. Uh, <laughs> it was in Empire Striketh Back when Han and Leia are, are you know, poking back and forth at each other. Uh, at one point, he has a line which I think is very Shakespearean, uh, because, well, because you'll understand as soon as I say it. And QuirkBooks looked at it and said, whoa, no, we can't do that. And so the line was simply, my blaster shall another holster find. Uh, very Shakespearean, I thought. Yes, yes. And QuirkBooks said no. So there it is. And now I'm never going to be invited back here ever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a question, and I'm going to tag into this, uh, the way your seminary experience has affected this. You have a really great gift for, for language. Um, uh, and so I guess the first question is, does it come easy to you? Does it flow out of the page? And has your acquaintance with King James text and others, which would have been very similar in regards to that, helped so that it is easier. I'd like you to talk a little bit about this privilege information too. The process that you use of of setting up boxes for yourself or challenges for yourself. Yeah. In other words, I've got to do this in a haiku. I mean, I have to do this in a haiku. I have to do this this way. I have to do this this way. And that actually makes you a better writer because you do that. Uh, yeah, so there's a lot there. So, um, uh, I think I mean, I've, I have read the King James Version of the Bible uh, once, 
uh, and I may at some point do it again. Uh, uh, but you know, so I actually think that that if nothing else, uh, singing hymns uh, that have uh, you know not language from the 1500s, but language that's old enough that you start getting the sense of when you use thee and thou and that sort of thing. And one thing I when I when I started on this venture. We, we've all seen Shakespeare parody done really terribly, right? Where people think that you can just add F to the end of any word and it makes it sound Shakespearean, right? So, we eth, are eth, heareth at this conference eth, you know, and it just doesn't, you know, it just doesn't sound at all like Shakespeare. And so, I felt like I had a pretty good sense of things. I wrote my first book, I actually sent it off to the, luckily, happily, the one college professor I'm still in touch with is the one person I ever took a Shakespeare class from in college. Uh, his name is Murray Biggs, and he uh, he teaches at my, my college, and and he uh, I sent it to him, and he went through it and and helped I mean helped me learn some things about Elizabethan grammar usage and things like that. Uh, he also has never seen Star Wars before, um, so after I after he r read the first book, he said, "I've got a feeling about Luke and Leia." <laughs> like, you've got the wrong feeling. Yeah. Uh, so, getting used to iambic pentameter, uh, I had written a little bit of iambic pentameter uh, throughout the years. I, I was uh, telling Michael earlier that that I had to, we had to write ten lines of iambic pentameter my senior year of high school uh, as a project in English class, and, and I did that and enjoyed it. Uh, I've written sonnets over the over the years. Again, big nerd, um, and I've done kind of countless versions, you know, for fun of Twas the Night Before Christmas. Um, and uh, uh, Michael's also talking about the, uh, the, the completely nerdy pact that I made with myself. Uh, I mean, first of all, probably only nerds make pacts with themselves. Uh, and the pact that I made with myself was about, it was about seven or eight years ago, and it was, if I'm going to write in verse and rhyme, I'm, I'm not going to fudge it anymore. I'm not going to slip in two syllables where there really should only be one. Um, and because it just seems lazy. You know, better to work hard and make sure that you are really being more rigid about it than, than to put out something that just sounds like you're not trying very hard. Um, and so that, I think, helped immeasurably coming, coming to this. Like I said, getting used to time pentameter was, was hard to begin with. It gets so much easier as you, as you do it. Um, these days, I, I, you know, can, I'll be listening to, I'll be watching a TV show, or I'll be listening to a conversation, and somebody will happen to say something, and I'll say, oh, that was iambic pentameter, and people look at me like I'm crazy, right? Uh, but it's just become that, and now watching Shakespeare performed is such a different experience for me, um, because you feel it so much more uh, when, you're, when you're used to the rhythm, so... Um, I don't know if that answered. Oh, oh, and then the other thing about about restrictions. I mean, I just had a ton of fun put, imposing restrictions on myself. Um, so the Rickroll that I told you about in Clone Army Attacketh, it's an acrostic, uh, and and so down the left hand side it says "Never Gonna Give You Up," um, but it's it's a double acrostic because the last letter of the end of every line spells "You've Been Rickrolled." Wow. Right. So, like. And, and then in the scene with the uh, with the the scene where Obi Wan goes to Kamino and meets the cloners, uh, these these t memorable characters because they were the ones with really long necks and you know sort of look like these white ethereal characters. Um, and I had read a book uh, which will be familiar to some of you called Goodall Escher Bach by uh, Douglas Hofstetter, uh, a book that I just love and I love Hofstetter beyond words. Um, and uh, he wrote in that di in that book. A series of dialogues uh, between uh, Achilles and the tortoise, uh, playing off of Lewis Carroll's work, and he wrote this one dialogue where uh, Achilles and tortoise's lines, right, so Achilles starts off with one line, and then tortoise, and then Achilles and tortoise, and then all of those lines are repeated at the end, but in the reverse order. So Achilles' very first line is also, I think, tortoise's very last line. Tortoise's first line is Achilles' last line, and it meets in the middle with a monologue by the crab. I thought, I'm going to do this with the cloner scene. Um, because if they're cloners, they will clone their own lines, right? So I have 
the the cloner characters, you know, the first line of the clone that the cloners speak is also the last line the cloners speak, and it goes and meets in the middle. Um, and 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 of course, Obi Wan line change in between, which is what makes the whole thing possible. Uh, but but it's that sort of thing that I love doing, even though it's like I know I'm setting myself up for a big challenge because I do think it helps you be more creative as a writer and and you know set yourself these these goals and just see. Gosh, I wonder if I can do this. And sometimes you can, and sometimes you can't. Um, yeah. One last question. One last question. That's okay, because he's the dean of our library. Okay. Um, okay. And, and this is a property question. Um, there are very few um, intellectual things that are specifically allowed in the U.S. copyright law. Parody is one of them. It is an absolutely protected, airtight thing. So why go to Lucasfilm? So that was a conversation with Quirkbooks early on. Uh, basically what the editor said was, we could probably try to do this without Lucasfilm. We could do it under parody law, right? Um, and, and it would probably be fine. Um, there are things you can't do within that. I, I've learned since I, since I did all this. You can't uh, use certain images. You, know, you, you certainly can't use images from the movie. Or you can't, I don't remember what all the laws are. But his point basically was, if they throw their support behind this, even though it means we'll have to pay them all kinds of money, uh, you know, and they they then will hold all the cards. Uh, if if they throw their support behind it, the level of exposure that you'll have for the book will be so much more than it would be otherwise. Um, and so, so I was, you know, and they have been. Lucasfilm has been incredibly supportive of it uh, of the venture. And so, so yeah, so that's the reason. So thank you. Thank you very much for uh, that. Um, what a wonderful way to begin the Wood Nose Symposium. So please uh, remember that. Uh, Ian, we've got a table to bring up here. Some of you I saw brought a book or two. Uh, we have a few minutes. He has a few minutes. Uh, if you want to chat with him or get your book signed, we'll take care of that. And now you may turn on your cell phones. And feel free to cough without unwrapping your mint. Right? Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Play On Podcast. Be sure to go back and listen to past interviews on the festival webpage, bard.org. Check out our latest episode, released every Friday, with your favorite directors, actors, and designers from our 2015 season. For more information on the Wooden O Symposium, visit the festival website at bard.org slash education.